get seated, I want to invite you uh, to turn to the book of Revelation with me. We're going to be in Revelation tonight, and I'm just going to forth warn you. Uh, you're going to want to, you want your Bibles open tonight, you're going to want a notebook out tonight. Those are the two things that uh, I would say are highly necessary tonight. And so find a Bible, maybe you can find a, a pen or a pencil from a friend, maybe you can find a notebook paper from a friend. And I'm going to warn you, tonight is going to be uh, difficult. This is the most difficult passage that we have come to thus far in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Um, I just want to start by addressing a difficult passage with what I, what I think we realize at this point in time is a very difficult thing that is happening in our world, and that is what is happening in the nation of Israel. Uh, today, I think most of you know, we're officially 11 days removed, 11, from the initial attack of a group called Hamas on the nation of Israel in the Middle East. And, and by now, you should know that last Saturday, October 7th, this group, Hamas, attacked Israel by air, by land, by sea initially killing 1,200 people and taking another estimated 150 people hostage in just one day. And I can only imagine, because I've gotten some questions about this from you guys, I can only imagine that for many of you in here, there's a lot of questions about what is happening, about what that means. There's a lot of confusion about what is happening, about what that means and you're probably a little bit confused on how you should think tonight, how you should feel tonight, how you should respond tonight. And so I'm going to try here in my introduction to, to do my best to provide some clarity on the situation. Uh, so, so for those unaware, Hamas, H-A-M-A-S, Hamas, is a couple of things. First, they're a, they're a militant Palestinian group. Uh, second, they're, they're an Islamic res resistance or, or, or revoltant movement. And I think now more clearly than ever, it's clear they're, they're a terrorist group. That was founded back in the year 1987. And what's very significant is that in the year 2007, this group, Hamas, they actually took control of a piece of land that's being called the Gaza Strip, and it's located on the Mediterranean Sea to, to the west of Israel. And this is important, okay? On multiple occasions, this group, Hamas, has publicly stated that their ultimate goal, their desire is to, quote, annihilate the state of Israel. That's their goal. And so Hamas is a clearly evil, a clearly vengeful group that is ready and willing to totally wipe out Israel if they get the chance. But you've probably seen a lot floating around. Maybe you've watched the news, maybe you've read some, some articles. We should also realize that, yes, there is a reason the Palestinian people and the group Hamas in particular feel this way about Israel. And quite frankly, that's because Israel has not always conducted their affairs with the Palestinians in a very fair way. That is true. And so I and I think we must acknowledge that Israel is not blameless. However, with that said, we also have to realize that what Hamas has done and is doing and hopes to do to Israel is completely and morally wrong. Completely and morally wrong that Hamas has deliberately 
They have viciously, they have wickedly chosen to attack, to abduct, and to murder innocent Israeli citizens. And I don't know if you saw this, it actually came out one week ago. There was a report that in one Israeli village, 40 babies were were murdered. In one Israeli village, 40 babies were murdered. It's difficult to even wrap your mind or say that out loud. And most of them were decapitated by Hamas. So to put this whole thing into perspective, so that we understand as, as a church tonight what is going on, this, uh, this attack by Hamas last Saturday was the, the most deadly attack on Jews in a single day since guess when? The Holocaust. And so I need you, before we get going tonight, to hear me loud and clear. Do not mistake this. What Hamas has done, is doing, plans to do to Israel is pure evil. And as Christians, we are totally right to condemn Hamas and to pray for their swift and complete destruction. And I would argue that as American Christians, we are totally right to advocate, to push for extreme levels of U.S. involvement in the nation of Israel, including the full extent of our military, if necessary, as an American Christian. And so I say all that to to make one thing abundantly clear from the get-go tonight, and that is that I stand with Israel and everyone in this room has no choice but to stand with Israel. And so I lead with that. But now I want to say this. Due to this terrible evil that has taken place in Israel, you might have seen some things start to resurface about the significance Israel plays in God's ultimate plan of redemption. In fact, some of you older students, maybe some of you small group leaders might have seen this. There's actually a really popular post going around on Facebook right now that asks the very first question, why does Israel matter? Maybe you've seen it. And then it goes on to essentially state that modern ethnic Israel matters because they are still the people of God. And therefore, that God is going to restore modern Israel. Israel and that the land, modern Israel, still has a significant place in God's final redemptive plan. And I want you to know that I believe that to be theologically incorrect, or at least mostly incorrect. You see, many Christians have very different understandings on what role modern Israel is going to play in the redemptive plan of God, and those differing views. And my personal belief that I've been led to believe according to the scriptures are going to come into play tonight. And so before we even begin, I just want you to know here that that genuine and thoughtful Christians do in fact disagree on this subject. And I believe with all my heart that, that these disagreements are in no way a threat to our fellowship as a body of Christ. It's not a question of Christian unity of salvation. So you absolutely have the freedom to disagree with some things that I will interpret in the text tonight. 
Now, that disagreement is not actually what the main point of our message will be. But I think you're going to see it's going to play a very significant role here very soon in this passage. But the main point of our message tonight is actually this, and this will pop up on the screen. The king has opened the door to his kingdom. That's what we're going to see. Ultimately tonight, this is what we're going to see in our text. The king has opened the door to his kingdom. First, we're going to see a king who has a kingdom. And then we're going to see a people for whom that kingdom's door has been opened. And then we're going to see the test that God's people are going to have to endure to make it to that kingdom. And then finally, we're going to see what the name of that kingdom is. So the king has opened the door to his kingdom. With your Bibles open to Revelation 3, and we're going to cover 7 through 13 tonight, but we're just going to read to begin verses 7 and 8, which say this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray for grace tonight to understand this passage, to interpret it the way Jesus spoke it. God, our hearts break for the nation of Israel. And God, we pray that justice would reign on this earth, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that maybe these third tier issues tonight become clear in our minds. We understand them. We agree on them. But if we don't, God, I I pray that, that we would have a spirit of humility about us and that we would see that the ultimate point is that the king has opened the door to his kingdom for his people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so according to these first few words of verse 7, so look there with me again, we we just read it, this particular letter is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. Okay, now now for us Americans, that's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the Eagles play, the Phillies play, I hate the Phillies, the 76ers play, not that Philadelphia. We're talking about the ancient city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. 2,000 years ago. But I want us to really focus on the rest of verse 7 because it's very unique in chapters 2 and 3. Because speaking to his church in Philadelphia, Jesus begins by saying the words of the Holy One. He's introducing himself. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, this is our sixth out of the seventh letters in chapters two and three, and you should know if you've been here for the past six weeks that this introduction is not like the other ones. 
And so I think it's worth us looking closely at it to start tonight. So first you're going to see in verse 7 that Jesus calls himself the Holy One. The Holy One. Anytime I see the description of God's holiness, me personally, I cannot help but to think back to Isaiah chapter 6. Where we got this, this prophet named Isaiah and he sees the Lord sitting on his throne and he hears the seraphim crying out to one another. You know what they're saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. As Brother Ricky has pointed out before, God's holiness, right here in Isaiah 6, it's the only description of God that is elevated to the third superlative in Scripture. You know what that means? God is holy. He is the epitome of holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And so what in Revelation 3 does Jesus call himself to the Philadelphian church? This is huge. He says, I'm the holy one. So let me just say this. Do not let anyone ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. It is all throughout the Bible, but particularly for us tonight, it's right here in Revelation 3, 7. He calls himself the Holy One. He is the Holy, Holy, Holy Lord of hosts. And then he calls himself the True One. Paul writes in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. God true, everyone else liar. So God is holy, and the Bible says he is truth. Jesus will say he is the way, the truth, and the life. So just like the holy one, Jesus here with this second thing, the true one, is making another reference to his deity. And here's where it gets really interesting. The third thing he says is that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. This is where many people get confused. What does Jesus mean by the key of David And an open door. Because if you look at what verse 8 says, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you, what? An open door which no one is able to shut. So one thing I think just just based on our hermeneutics here should be clear to us about these two verses, 7 and 8. Follow me here. Whatever Jesus is saying about an open door in verse 8 is directly stemming from his description of himself in verse 7. So according to Jesus in verse 7, he has the key of David, and when he opens a door, guess what? No one can shut it. And when he shuts a door, guess what? No one can open it. And then immediately in verse 8, he says to his church in Philadelphia that he set before them, An open door. These are connected. Now here's what a lot of people interpret this open door as. It's a pretty common interpretation. They believe that this open door in verse 8 means that Jesus has opened the door for his Philadelphian church to evangelize, to bear witness, to share the gospel with their Jewish neighbors and the people of Philadelphia. 
So to many people, this open door, is, it's about evangelism. And they would maybe cite Acts 14, 27, where Luke records how God has opened a door of faith for the Gentiles for Luke and Barnabas. Others may cite 1 Corinthians 69, where Paul writes that he will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And so follow with me here. Generally speaking, this is, in fact, how the New Testament speaks about God opening a door. It's an open door to do what? Evangelize. To share the gospel. But that is not, I think, what is happening in Revelation 3. You see, here's what I think we have to remember about the book of Revelation. This is huge for us interpreting the book the rest of this school year. Nearly every verse in this book has Old Testament roots and not necessarily New Testament roots. So I want you to look again with me at what Jesus says in verse 7, okay? Let's just look at it one more time. It says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, where does that come from? Does it come from the New Testament? It is not. It comes directly, in fact, from the Old Testament. So we're going to show this on the screen. I want you to look at Isaiah 22, 22. This is what it says. It says, and I will place on his shoulder, we don't know who that is yet, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. This is directly where Jesus gets Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. But who is that he in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two? In its original context that he is a guy named Eliakim. And so here's the context of Isaiah 22. This guy Eliakim, this is huge is being granted the authority to control who does come into the kingdom, into the king's presence, and who does not come into the king's presence. And so if if Eliakim, if he opens the door to the king's presence, then no one can, can refute him. No one can then shut it. But if Eliakim shuts the door to the king's presence, then it's good. Guess what? No one can open it. You can't go in. He's like the ultimate door opener. What he says goes. That's the point. Eliakim, he has the key to determine who enters the kingdom. And so back in Revelation 3, Jesus comes along and he says, Hey, I am the better. I am the true Eliakim. He says that that ultimately, I am the one, Jesus is the one, not Eliakim. Who has the key of David? It's Jesus, ultimately, who opens and no one shuts. Who shuts and no one opens. It's ultimately about Jesus. And so that means that in a much more profound way, an important way than Eliakim, Jesus is saying he is the one who has the ultimate authority to determine who enters the kingdom. And who does not enter the kingdom. He's saying, I can open the door to whomever I will. And I can close the door to whomever I will. So here's the key. 
in verse 8, when Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut, my understanding of that open door is not that Jesus has opened the door for evangelism, like many people believe, but instead I believe it's connected to Isaiah 22 and that he's talking about the way in which he's opened the door for his church to his kingdom. And that's going to lead us into our first section of the night. We're going to see the king of the kingdom. Verses 7 and 8, they teach us that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. The point is that, that Jesus has the key to his kingdom, and he's been given the authority to open the door or close the door to that kingdom to whomever he wills. And here's the good news. Here's the gospel for you and me tonight. For his church, he says that he's opened the door to his kingdom. And that because he's opened the door, no one can shut it. So let's just connect the dots here. Just like the rest of Asia Minor during this time, to live in Philadelphia, if you were a Christian, was a very difficult thing. So what do you think Jesus is trying to say? Well, I think what he's trying to say is, is, hey, Philadelphia, hey, church, despite the hostile world you are living in, you can take comfort, you can take refuge, you can continue to be faithful to me despite your hardships because I have opened a door, to you, a door for you to my kingdom that no one can shut. That's why he says in verse 8, I know you have but little power. I know it's hard, I know you're suffering, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And so Jesus is commending his church for staying faithful to him, even through their trials, and he's giving them some motivation to continue to stay faithful to him. Not that this world is going to get easier, but that the world to come, his kingdom, is coming, and no one can keep them out of it. Because he's opened the door for them. That's what Jesus is saying. And the same is true for you and me tonight. Whatever you may be walking through tonight, if you are in fact a believer in Jesus Christ, take comfort in this. The king of the kingdom has opened the door for you. And no one can shut it. Not that person who, who's causing your suffering. He can't shut it. She can't shut it. Not Satan, who we saw a couple weeks ago, is trying to destroy you. He is powerful, but he can't shut the door to God's kingdom. You can't even shut the door to God's kingdom that he has opened for you. Christ has opened it. No one can shut it. The door to God's kingdom has been opened for us. Jesus has died on the cross for us. He bore all our sin. He's took on himself the wrath we deserve. He's risen from the dead. And so now, based on what he has done, that kingdom door has been opened and no one can shut it no matter how hard they try. That is good news. So to his people, to his church, he's saying, hey, you got, you got to keep going. You got to keep pushing. You got to keep obeying my word. You got to keep not denying my name even in this hostile world full of suffering. This is great news. The king of the kingdom has opened the door to his kingdom for his people. And that's going to beg the question. Who then are his people? 
Who are these people that the king has opened the door to his kingdom for? And that leads us to our second very important section. The people of the kingdom. To whom does the kingdom of God belong? And and here, just in case you don't understand, this is where the, the question of Israel's involvement in God's final ultimate redemptive plan comes into play. The question is, is ethnic Israel, modern Israel, are they still the people of God? Does God plan to restore to himself modern Israel? And my answer is no. And I want to explain by by us first looking together at what Jesus says in the very next verse. Verse 9. He says, Behold... I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them, that's the Jews, come and bow down before your, that's the church's, feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. This is an unbelievably crucial verse. In it, Jesus is telling his church in Philadelphia that he's going to make some people in Philadelphia who say, who think that they're Jews, but who are really not Jews, learn that he has loved them, his church. And the key word there is people who say they're Jews. You see, according to Jesus, not Chase, not Brother Ricky, not Corey, not, not, not any of us. According to Jesus, to be a Jew ethnically does not automatically imply that someone is a Jew inwardly. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you've got to understand this. The entire Jewish scriptures, which are the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible, all point forward to who? To Jesus, the Messiah. And so based on that, and according to Jesus himself, to be truly Jewish then, to be truly a part of Israel then, To be inwardly Jewish is to trust in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah that he is. And so here in verse 10, Jesus says he's going to make those in Philadelphia who claim to be Jews only in ethnicity come and bow down before his church's feet and learn that he has loved them. Because it is not ethnicity that makes someone truly Jewish according to Jesus. But instead, it's faith in Jesus as the Messiah that makes someone truly Jewish. And so let's connect this to modern day Israel. Just because someone is an Israelite by ethnicity does not automatically make them one of God's chosen people. And it does not automatically mean he or she will be restored by God. 
when he returns. It's only those who are Israelites by faith in Jesus. So in other words, you may be a descendant of Abraham. You may have Abraham's blood in your blood, but to be truly God's people means you must share in the faith that Abraham had, which was in Jesus, in the promised Messiah. And so as much as my heart breaks for Israel, as as against Hamas as I could possibly be tonight, I also want to correct our thinking At least for me personally, no. I do not believe the Bible is teaching that modern ethnic Israel are God's chosen people. Instead, I believe that that those of the Jewish heritage who trust in Jesus as their Lord, as their Messiah, they are God's chosen people. And additionally, Gentiles, which are people like you and me, who likewise trust in Jesus as our Messiah, we too are God's chosen people. We, Gentiles, have been grafted in to God's chosen people, to true Israel. And so now together, Jews and Gentiles who trust in Jesus make up what is called true Israel. We're not a geographical location anymore. We are a global people. Now, a lot of people would claim that that means that I'm saying that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology, but that's totally false, and it's not what I'm saying. You can think about it like this. Helpful illustration, I hope. You got a caterpillar, and you got a butterfly. Does the butterfly replace the caterpillar? No. The caterpillar was always intended to grow into the butterfly. What's the illustration? Old Testament Israel was never God's ultimate plan to claim as his people. They were the caterpillar. And the church doesn't replace Israel just like a butterfly doesn't replace a caterpillar. The caterpillar grows into a butterfly. That's the point. A butterfly is a caterpillar in its final and complete form. And the same is true for the church's relationship with Old Testament Israel. We haven't replaced them. But now the church, which is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, have become the butterfly. The final and true form of Israel. We, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, are the true Israel. So no, the church has not replaced Israel, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that together, all of us from all time who trust in Christ, we are the true Israel. God's people now goes beyond ethnic lines. That's the entire point of the passage, right? Jesus, he's this king who's opened the door to his kingdom for his people, For his true Israel, and no one can shut this door that he's opened for us. So, what that means very practically, think about the the question of security of believers. Can you lose your salvation? Well, this passage teaches me that you cannot. You want to know why? Because what it's it's saying, what Jesus is saying, is that our salvation, our eternal security in this kingdom is perfectly safe. Despite our sufferings, despite our hardships, despite ourselves, why? Because Christ has opened the door and no one can shut it. Praise the Lord. 
So is that it? Like, is it that easy? The door's open. Like, I see an open door right there. Is it, is it easy for me just to walk through that open door and now I'm good? And the passage isn't over because you see, well, while that door to his kingdom, yes, has in fact been open, it cannot be shut, which means we're eternally secure. Next, we're going to see the actual road to walking through that door is very, very difficult. It's going to lead us to our third section, the test to the kingdom. I've shown you the king of the kingdom. I've shown you the people of the kingdom. But now we get into this very important question of the test to enter that kingdom. I had a feeling for many of us in this room, to be honest, me as well, I don't like this. But the test to the kingdom is going to be very clear in verse 10, and we're going to see it. It's that God's people, true Israel, is going to face tribulations. Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. You know, I think a lot of people think this is referring to two things. First, that there's going to be something called the Great Tribulation. Most, most people believe it's like a seven-year period at the, at the end of the world. And second, that the church, true Israel, is going to be spared or is going to be raptured out of the world by Jesus before that great tribulation gets here so that we don't have to suffer in it. And they use this verse to defend their position. And, and let me tell you why I personally, now this is a third tier issue. I said that at the beginning. We don't have to agree on this in particular. But I'll tell you why I, I'm not buying that, at least the second point. Yes, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I read that too. And a lot of people think that keep you here means something like spare you. I will spare you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. But I want you to see this. The Greek word for keep you here in Revelation 3 is tereo ek. T-E-R-E-O-E-K. And tereo ek is only used one other time in the New Testament. One. And like here in Revelation, guess who says it? Jesus. I'm going to show you where he says it on the screen. John 17, 14 and 15, this is what Jesus says. He says, I have given them, by the way, high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father just before his crucifixion. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And so Jesus asked the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, tereo ek, that you keep them from the evil one. So the way I understand this, pre-tribulationist, that is people who believe that Jesus is going to rapture the, the church before the tribulation, take his church out of the world, they, they may actually be at odds with what Jesus is praying to his father here in John 17. 
Because he's saying that, hey, I'm not asking you, Father, to take my people out of the world. That's not what I'm asking. Even though this world is going to hate them, even though it's going to bring them great tribulations, instead, what I'm asking you is to keep them from the evil one. And so he says, don't take them out of the world, but keep them. And then in Revelation 3, that same Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So hear me clearly. I do not believe Jesus is saying, I will keep you, meaning I will rapture you. I will spare you from this great tribulation. The Greek word, tereo ek, actually means to guard, to protect. And so instead, what I think Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to guard you in and through these tribulations. Not by taking you out of the world so you don't experience it, but by protecting you in the world. So you see, this is is clear to me throughout the rest of the New Testament too. Tribulations are common for Christians. And in a way, they're, they're test to the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's not going to let that test consume us. It's not going to overcome us. It's not going to overtake us because Christ, in Christ, we have the strength to remain faithful despite our tribulation. Now for me personally, I'll just add this. I don't think Jesus is actually referring to the great tribulation in verse 10. Will there be a, 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 a period of of intensified persecution, intensified tribulation for the church before Christ returns. I think that's possible. I think it's probable. I think it's, it's very, very likely. But that is not what he's promising to keep his church from here in Revelation 3. And here's why I believe that. Let me ask you this question. Look at, look at the text with me. Why would Jesus promise here to, to protect his church, to keep his church from something they would never personally experience? This was written 2,000 years ago. The great tribulation has not happened. Yet he looks his church in the eyes and says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth. And people say, that's the tribulation. It can't be the tribulation because the Philadelphian church never went through the tribulation. The people who originally received this letter would have never endured the, quote, great tribulation because it hadn't happened yet. And so instead, what I think Jesus is referring to is his promise to protect his church in their current and future tribulations that they will inevitably face in this fallen world. And I'll I'll show you my full cards here. I think that hour of trial that Jesus talks about in verse 10, I think it's already here. And you guys saw this weeks ago in Revelation 1-3, for the time is near, what What is that synonymous to? It's synonymous to the last days. So is the hour of trial. That's because the hour of trial, the last days, they have already begun. And so by Jesus saying the hour of trial that is coming in the world, I believe he's referring to the entire church age, the entire time between Christ's first and second coming, where there are going to be great tribulations. It is going to be commonplace. And so the church in Philadelphia was living in the hour of trial, and it was going to continue. It was going to get worse, and we today are living in the hour of trial in the last days 
And likewise, it's going to continue and it's going to get worse. So the point Jesus is making to his church is in this life, you're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to suffer greatly. And you need to realize this tonight. It is not God's will for you to be removed from these trials. But instead to be protected through these trials. And so while the king has has opened a door for us to his kingdom, that, that doesn't mean the road to walking through that door is just a piece of cake. We are going to face tribulations and so how should we respond to these tribulations? What well, Jesus tells us in verse, verse 11. Look there with me. How should we respond to our tribulations? He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So in, in effect here, Jesus is saying that when tribulations come to his church, stay faithful. Hold fast. Hold tight. Don't let go. Remain steadfast. Just keep going until you make it to the door that has been opened for you. Don't give up. It takes us to our final section of the night. The name of the kingdom. I've shown you the king, the people, the tests. Now I'll show you the name. He says in verse 12, The one who conquers, the one who conquers his sin, stays faithful through tribulation, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This gets good. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God from out of heaven in my own new name. And this theme is going to continue throughout this book. So for for now, I'm just going to leave this really simple. The name of the kingdom is New Jerusalem. And the point Jesus is making is I am the king, and I have opened the door for my people to my eternal kingdom, which is called New Jerusalem. This is the place, this is the kingdom in which the doors have been opened for all of God's people. So I'll end by asking this final question. What must we do to make it to New Jerusalem? Isn't that what we all want? Like, don't you want to go to New Jerusalem? Don't you want to live for eternity in New Jerusalem? What must we do? We must trust in Christ And then we must keep trusting in Christ. We must keep walking with Christ. We must keep persevering in our faith. We must keep obeying the Bible, remaining faithful to Jesus. No, I do not believe New Jerusalem will be modern Israel's kingdom. New Jerusalem belongs to the true Israel, made up of Jews and Gentiles of all time who trust in Jesus the Messiah. So if that's you tonight, or if you will trust in Jesus tonight, hear me. 
The king has opened the door for you to his kingdom. So no no matter how difficult it gets at school tomorrow, no matter how difficult it gets this school year, no matter how difficult it gets in college, no matter how difficult it gets when life hits you hard, no matter the opposition, no matter the tribulations, just keep going until you make it to that open door and walk into new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the idea of spending eternity with our King in New Jerusalem is overwhelming. God, and I pray that the density of this passage would not be, would not overshadow the simplicity of it. That you, our gracious King, have opened the door to New Jerusalem for your people. God, may we trust in Christ and may we keep persevering in Christ until we walk through those doors. It's in Christ's name we pray.